0: We're going through a series on the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ch- Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most famous passages in the whole scripture. It's a fantastic passage of scripture. It's something that will be very encouraging to you all today. It's been encouraging to me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. As I said just a minute ago, each week I share that our mission statement here is to help religious and irreligious people to become gospel people. And we say it that way because it's an intentionally weird way of saying what the mission of the church is. It's meant to kind of like cause you to think about it for just a minute. Because most of you, before coming to this church, I would assume, had never heard the term gospel person. Gospel person is just a weird way of saying Christian. But the Bible rarely says the word Christian and often talks about the gospel. The gospel is what Christians should be known for. To be a gospel person is to be a person who follows Jesus, who's heard the good news about Jesus, who's accepted it to be true for themselves, and is seeking to follow Jesus with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is what a gospel person is. But there's so many preconceived notions about what Christians are, about who Christians are. There's two great enemies to becoming a gospel person. And again, it's in our mission statement. There's religion and irreligion, and each and every one of us oscillates between those two. Irreligion says, I have no need for God. I can enjoy my life and live it up without God. Religion says, I'm going to clean myself up and make myself right before God. I'm going to be a moral person and prove that I'm a good person before God, and then he will accept me. Neither of these is the gospel. The gospel is not advice for how to live your life. The gospel is good news. It is not advice. You see, we we oftentimes hear the Christian message and we take it as advice. This is a, a code of conduct to live. And we don't see that it's actually a message rooted in history about what God has done. And so for the next two weeks, As we're going through Ephesians, we're actually going to do this little miniature series on our mission statement here. This week is the gospel versus irreligion. And next week is the gospel versus religion. We're going to be breaking it down like that. This week, this this idea of, of the gospel versus irreligion, irreligion. I want us to think about our mission statement just for another moment And this mission statement, it both has an internal aspect to it. Like we want to become more gospel people. I here want to believe the good news about Jesus more because I sometimes act as though I haven't heard it. You know, Martin Luther would preach the gospel week in and week out. And this older lady came up to him, Martin Luther, the great reformer, this older lady came up to him after like a long time where he was just preaching the gospel message. And she said, surely we're ready to move on to something else. To which he replied, I'll start preaching something else when you act like you've heard the thing that I've been preaching. And isn't that true for each and every one of us so often that we hear this gospel message, but our hearts are forgetful. And we snap back into irreligion, religion, snap back into religion each and every time. And so it has an internal aspect. And and as we live out this mission internally, that's in our community. And so we're all about the gospel message and we're about this community aspect of living out the gospel message. But there's also this aspect of our our, uh, mission that is outward facing, that we want to reach the people of Somerville, Cambridge, Medford, Arlington, and beyond with the good news of Jesus, we want to help people outside of the church to also become gospel people because we recognize that this is the path to wholeness, to flourishing, to joy everlasting. We're not trying to sell them a used car that we think might give out on them. We're giving them something fantastic. And so we we endeavor to share the gospel message with our friends. And so since that's been something that we've been a, that's been a part of who we are for many years, let me just ask this simple question. How are we doing? How are you doing? You know, it's not just a, a me thing trying to share it. It's a all of us thing. Individually, we own this mission together. How are we doing with it? It's hard. This is a very hard place to share the gospel message. It's really hard. And let me tell you two two reasons why our church isn't flooded with people seeking the good news of Jesus each and every week. And you guys know these these two things, but let let me just lay them out there very clearly. The first one is, is our neighbors do not see why they need to be saved. They're happy with the way their life is going. Why do I, do I really need to be saved? Do I really need this? I would never buy something I really need. That's like selling a a refrigerator to an Eskimo, right? And so for many times, that's what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to sell something to people that they don't see any need for in their life. Do I really need to be saved? But then the second question that they don't, that we don't have an answer to oftentimes is, do I, what does Christianity really offer? Because if you survey our neighbors who aren't coming to church as to what Christianity really has to offer, at best, they would say, a religious framework for helping people to be more moral. At worst, they would say something to the extent of, it really only has to offer a political agenda. I think that that's how our neighbors see us oftentimes, only political in that way. And so today as we explore this passage, I want to tackle those two questions. Do I really need to be saved? Maybe you're here today. Maybe, maybe you don't have much background in church and, and these are questions that you have. Do I really need this? <laughs> and what does Christianity really offer? Those are the two points for today. Do I really need to be saved and what does Christianity really have to offer? Point one, do I really need to be saved? I'm going to show my full nerdom as we, as we go into this. I think that you guys can track with me. I think pound for pound, we have one of the most nerdy churches in the country, and I'm proud of it, very proud of it. We play chess with each other for our spare time. I mean, it's fun, you know, we're a nerdy, nerdy bunch. In the movie Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, It's not even that nerdy, right, okay? It's very popular. The the movie Avengers 2 Age of Ultron, Tony Stark, Iron Man, he creates this artificial intelligent robot named Ultron. And Ultron does the same thing that you and I might do when we first wake up. When when Ultron's first made, what does he do? He surfs the internet. He goes on a researching campaign. And after he researches for about 10 seconds about humans, he comes to the conclusion that humans are inherently evil and should not exist. Let this be a lesson to us. Doing our own research on the internet does not always lead to good conclusions. Ultron decided that humans no longer need to exist because they're inherently bad. They need to be destroyed. And so that's what the rest of the movie is about, is is, is Ultron trying to destroy humanity let's all take a moment to pretend that we are Ultron and we're given an opportunity to unbiasedly observe humanity from a third point of view, third-person point of view. What would you observe? What would you conclude about the nature of humans? Would you say that humans are inherently good? With all of the wars and the disease and the fighting and the bickering and everything that comes with it, you would be hard-pressed to make that conclusion that humans are inherently good. And so today, we get to look at what God has to say about this, about the nature of humans. When the Bible describes the basic nature of, hum- of human beings, this is what it says. Verse 1 chapter 2, the book of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The Bible would say that humans are not fundamentally good, they're fundamentally dead. We were created to be good. We all know what goodness is, and we long for it. We were created to be good. But ever since Adam ate of the fruit in the the Garden of Eden, death has reigned. God promised, if you eat of that fruit, you will die. And Satan lied. He said, surely you won't die. And so Adam moved forward and he ate of the fruit along with his wife Eve and death has reigned ever since if we have inherited anything we've inherited death from our forefather adam you and i were born spiritually stillborn dead alienated from god the bible says we're beyond merely flawed you know it's no amount of education can help someone that's dead A lot of times the the solutions that we come up with are good solutions, but they're they're not holistic solutions because we want to educate the world, make the world a more educated place, and that's a good thing. That's something that the world endeavors to do. But if you're dead spiritually, education is not going to help you. We need to be made alive. And so the Bible speaks of our sin really seriously in this way. Because of our trespasses and sins, we are dead. But when we talk about our sin, it's usually not in such a serious manner. When we talk about our sins, how do we usually say it? We might say something to the extent of, I messed up. Or I slipped. Or I'm struggling. We talk about our sins in a way, and, and all those are true things, and it's fine to talk about it that way. But I just want to help you observe that we talk about our sins in such a way that makes us a fundamentally good person that sometimes makes mistakes. But at the heart of humans, we were created to be good, but because of our sin, we are spiritually dead. Do I really need a Savior? Do I really need to be saved? Yes. Apart from Christ, you were spiritually dead, incapable of bringing yourself to life. Now, what does it look like to be spiritually dead? Paul describes that. Let's continue looking at Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, hear this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom all one, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Let me summarize what he just said, and then we'll unpack it. A spiritually dead life follows the course, follows the current of this world, and does whatever I want when I want. A spiritually dead life follows the course of the world. It fits in and it does whatever I want when I want it. It is a self-gratifying, selfish way of existence. Paul says that spiritually dead person is following the course of this world. What does that mean? To follow the course of this world is to live for self. Think about how normal people, everyone lives. What is the natural way to live? It's to achieve. The natural way to live is to accumulate. Accumulate wealth. Accumulate uh, accolades. Accumulate approval. Security. To, to gain more for myself. To live for me. And to satisfy me. And Paul describes that as the basic nature of what it means to be spiritually dead. It's to live for self. This gets at the very heart of what it means to be a sinner. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. This gets at the heart of what it means to be a sinner. Because to be a sinner, oftentimes when we think about sin, we think about a long list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, do this. Do this, don't do this. But when the Bible talks about sin, there are some do's and don'ts, but more inherent to our sin nature than that are desires that we're carried away by our own personal Desires. He says the desires of the body and the mind. It's not simply that we've broken the rules, but rather we've loved ourselves. We we've, we've satisfied our own desires. We desire ourselves and the things of this world more than we do God, which makes sense. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with uh, Augustine, and Augustine has that famous quote where he says, "You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you." So, friends, do I really need to be saved? Yes. (laughs) Apart from Christ, I'm spiritually dead and I'm living out my own selfish desires, which is accumulating for me more death. This is the way of the world. In fact, to love yourself in this kind of way, this is what Paul says. He says that satisfying your own desires whenever you want, however you deem best, this is irreligion and this is foundationally what it means to be a Satanist. Because how does he say it? He says, verse one, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a nickname for Satan. Satan. That's a nickname for the evil one. To live a selfish life is a way to follow Satan. C.S. Lewis in his great book, Screwtape Letters, he talks about the ways that Satan works. As a book of, of a senior demon writing to a younger demon, giving him tips on how to tempt him, how to tempt people. And the demon says, we don't need to reveal ourselves if we can just get the person to ignore God and to live for themselves. Temptation works better for us in this day and age by just being more subtle in that kind of way. Friends, you don't have to own a Ouija board or have an upside-down star tattoo on your forehead to be a Satanist. You just have to live out your life carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. That's why I don't actually like the way that Christians talk about spiritual warfare oftentimes, because the way that we usually talk about spiritual warfare is normal life is just normal. But then when something really bad happens, we start thinking spiritual warfare. Well, if we're going to take this passage seriously, we would say not that we don't believe in spiritual warfare, but that A lot more spiritual warfare is happening than just when something really bad happens. The nature of spiritual warfare is that Satan is tempting you to live for yourself instead of living for Christ. Satan doesn't need to spook you if he can get you to give in to to temptation satan doesn't need to get the kids of the church to start practicing witchcraft if he can get the adults of the church to gratify every sinful desire that comes to their mind or their body this is what it means to follow the prince of the power of the air so do i really need to be saved yes apart from christ you were spiritually dead Yes, apart from Christ, you're gratifying the, the sinful nature of your own body. You're following desires of yourself. Yes, apart from Christ, you're, you're following Satan. That's what the Scripture says. Paul ends this little section, and, and look, guys, I know the news is bad right now, but it's going to get good here in a minute. And he ends this section, verse 3, by saying, We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind this means that every single one of us apart from christ is rightfully deserving of hell simple that we're rightfully heading toward hell now the way that c.s lewis depicts this sorry for all the c.s lewis quotes there's a lot this week the way that c.s lewis depicts this um, in a book called the great divorce is he depicts hell as this place where People get to live in their selfishness. He depicts hell as this place where people just move farther and farther away from one another so they don't have to deal with each other. And they get to live in their own selfishness and gratify the desires of their sinful flesh. And it makes them miserable. But they don't even know that they're fully miserable. They know it, but then they they think that they can satisfy themselves in one way or another. And so, and for C.S. Lewis, hell is locked from the inside. They don't want anything to do with God. which makes a lot of sense with this text, when you think about it. If that's what we're doing, gratifying the desires of the flesh, and these things are actually the things that make us miserable. And Paul says, like the rest of mankind, this is everyone. You might think, what about this person? They're a really good person. Look, friends, there are a lot of moral people out there. I have a lot of moral neighbors that I'm friends with, people that I love but it's not about how moral you are. There are a lot of spiritually dead moral people and spiritually dead immoral people. The fact is we haven't measured up to God's standards and we've still sought the desires of our own pleasure apart from him. We've worshiped wrongly. So do I really need to be saved? Yes, apart from Christ, I'm spiritually dead, worshiping myself above all things, following Satan and heading to hell. That's the bad news. But all of this turns right here. There is good news. Point number two. What does Christianity really offer? What does it really offer? Our friends do not become Christians because they do not believe that they need to be saved, nor do they know what Christianity really offers. Hear what Paul says. Verse four, one of the most important and amazing verses in all of scripture, one that we should memorize, that we should write on our on our, our note cards and tape them to our windows. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the physician preacher, he was a doctor and a preacher, once said that these two words, but God is the shortest summary of the gospel in all of the scriptures. He preached an entire sermon on those two words. One time I watched a sermon in a, in a black church where a man got up and he read Ephesians 2 and then he got to verse 4 and he said, but God. And then the sermon ended because everybody just started cheering, but God. He interrupts us. He interrupts our death. It's like, hey, you, sorry you're dead. I'm going to wake you up now. He interrupts us in our death, in our spiritually dead place, and he brings us to life. What situation do you need God to interrupt today? I am hurting, but God brings healing. I am anxious, but God brings security. I am sinful, but God brings mercy. I am depressed, but God is good. I am lonely, but God is with me. We want to be a church where God interrupts our deadness. What does Christianity have to offer? It's more than a moral system to life. It's more than a political agenda christianity offers life when we were spiritually dead more than that christianity offers god christianity offers god himself Because our sins are paid for, we get to enjoy God. It's not only that we're saved from something, but we're saved to something. Hang with me here for just a minute. We're saved from our sin, washed clean, but that just gives us a clean slate. The next thing is that we're saved to a God who loves us. It gives us relationship. Look at the scripture. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He breathed life into our lungs. Nothing that we did, all that he did. Now, there is some personal responsibility. It's like when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he said, Lazarus, come out. At that moment, Lazarus breathed in again and lived he still had to get off the table and start walking. Maybe you're at that point where God's breathed life into you, but you've got to get off that table and start walking. There is a human component to it, but it is all God's mercy. But here, listen what he says. He says that he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then what does he do? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Last night, I was watching a movie with my kids and my wife, my family. And my daughter seated herself with me on the couch. And my son seated himself with me in my lap. Those people can sit as close to me as they want when I say it's okay. Sometimes I need a little space they can sit that close to me because I want them near because I love them. And that is what this scripture is describing. It's not saying you've just been saved. Now, good luck. It's saying because of the great love with which he loved us. Think about that for just a second. God is not indifferent toward you. He is not merely tolerating you. Because of the love with which he loved us, he made us alive. And he didn't just make us alive and say, good luck out there, kids. He raised us up He lifted us up and he seated us with him. He holds us near like I do my kids on movie night. Because he he doesn't just want to tolerate us. He wants us to enjoy him forever. What does God offer? What does Christianity really offer? Christianity offers forgiveness of sins. But more than that, Christianity offers relationship with God offers God himself the source of all goodness and kindness and mercy. Look at how Paul describes God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. It doesn't say becoming rich in mercy. It says being rich in mercy. It's just something that he is. It's, It's foundational to who he is. He is rich in mercy. He doesn't change. That's just who he is. We get a little peek into the divine presence of who he is here. It's his very nature. It's the most foundational thing about him. Yet we have such a hard time believing this. Oftentimes we think about God as being a judgy God or God as being like a stingy God. And if you worship a judgy God or a stingy God, Augustine again says that you become what you worship. And if you worship a judgy God, you become a judgy person. And if you worship a stingy God, you become a stingy person. So sometimes we need to like work our way backward and say, I'm a judgy person. What does that say about what I believe about God? I'm a stingy person. What does that say about what I believe about God? But friends, if you worship the true God, he will be making you into a merciful person. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what our world needs more of right now? I don't need to be judged any more than what I already am. All right? When I come to the church, I need to receive the mercy of god this is not a place of judgment this is a place of mercy and kindness gentleness peace nowhere in the scripture does it say that god is rich in anything except for right here where it says god is rich in mercy It's like he invested in Bitcoin in 2009. He's rich in it. Rich. We think about God being rich in judgment, justice. We think about God almost being like a dam, holding back. If we touch God, it's holding back this this stream of judgment that's going to fall on us. But what the Bible says is that if we touch God, it's actually holding back a, a, a river of mercy and kindness. That is who our God is. Contrast this with Satan. Contrast it with Satan and and, and all of us, if we're following the desires of our life, we're following Satan. C.S. Lewis says it like this in screw Tape Letters. He says that the demons, they said, we want cattle who can, become, who can finally become food. God wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and overflows. Isn't that how it feels when we live out our, our selfish desires? Just feel more empty trying to fill those things up. But God, is full and full and flows over. This book I gave away a couple weeks ago, "Delighting in the Trinity," puts it like this: The contrast between the devil and the triune God could not be starker. The first is empty, hungry, grasping, envious. The second is superabundant, generous, radiant and self-giving. What does Christianity offer? Christianity offers forgiveness of sin, but more than that, a God who loves and gives us fellowship. Let's end with this simple question, verse 7. Why? Why would he do this? In verse 7, he says why. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus you know what that says why does God do it to show off that's what it says to show off his immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for his own glory He's not showing off like a billionaire pulling up on his yacht, though. He's showing off like a bride on her wedding day, saying, this is for my husband. No one looks at a bride and says, so prideful, all about herself. No, it is her day. That is what God does for us. He delights for us to delight in him. And so he sent his one and only son To become a child of wrath on our part. To walk through the dark valleys so that we might become sons of God. You see, on the cross, Christ bore the wrath of God that belonged to us. And when He raised a new life, now, because God raised Christ from the dead, when we simply believe That good news that he is risen, and we repent, we live our lives in light of that, forsaking our sinful desires of the flesh and of the mind, turning toward the desires of God that are so satisfying. We get life with him eternally, simple as that. Each week, we remember what Christ has done for us by participating in a communion meal. And we take this meal each week to remind ourselves that Christ died on our behalf and that we are made alive through what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your good news. And we pray that you'll interrupt our habits of death, that you'll remind us of who you are, and you'll give us the joy of following after you.